Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Tuesday, June 29th, and I'm the host of this episode, Emily Flippin. Today, I'm joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst Asit Sharma to take a big bite out of an upcoming IPO. It is Krispy Kreme. Asit, I'm really excited for this one. Woohoo! Emily, I am too. What a fun IPO to discuss. Not to say that the other IPOs we've looked at so far this year haven't been exciting in their own way, but this one you know, hits close to home on so many levels for me and for you. Yes, I I have some strong opinions, as I know we've discussed personally before, about donuts. Um, I'm weird in the fact that I'm not a huge donut fan. I I don't particularly like them. Cake donuts are okay. I'm not a big fried dough person. But more importantly, there is a very particular way that one should spell donuts. And it's spelling out dough nuts, not do nuts. And I hate the culture that we've created where spelling out donuts, do nuts is somehow acceptable. And I have to tell you, when I was sifting through this S1, I was already kind of looking fondly on Krispy Kreme because they spell donuts correctly throughout the entire report. So off to a good foot here. They are coming back to the markets with some integrity. I too am a fan of the D-O-U-G-H spelling But you know, Emily, the executives at Dunkin' Donuts would disagree with us. As you and I saw on our live uh, show, Motley Fool Live, several weeks ago, most of the donut shops in Texas, where you're from, prefer the D-O-N-U-T spelling. So I think we've got to live with it, but we're going to give Krispy Kreme some points right off the bat for getting it right. I will live with it, but I will loudly live with it. I will call it out whenever I see it. I'll be the most annoying person to have in your donut shop wherever I am in Texas. You go. Well, we do have the preliminary prospectus for Krispy Kreme. And uh, I actually wasn't aware, I think, of what I'll call a, a checkered history for Krispy Kreme. It was originally a public company. I think it was brought public in 2000, then taken private in 2016 after you know a, a dozen or so years of really challenging times. They've, they've been through a lot. So um, you, Asit, being more familiar with the history of Krispy Kreme, um, let's talk a little bit about where Krispy Kreme has been before we get into where it's going. Well, Krispy Kreme, Emily, was founded in 1937 in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, which happens to be about three hours west of where I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. And for a long time, it was a chain which was associated with um, treats here in the South, and they gradually started to branch out. In fact, today, the company has a surprisingly strong presence way out on the West Coast, but there's a lot of white space in between. And in the period that you're talking about, the company grew, as you said, through franchise groups, which were often competing. The franchisees went through bankruptcies. Some had trouble expanding northward, which has always been a task for Krispy Kreme to to generate some true momentum outside of its southern roots, where a good fried piece of dough is par for the course in your daily caloric intake. Um, you pointed out when we were prepping for this 
uh, show that one of the problems the company faced during the period of the early 2000s was that it lacked internal controls. Um, they had a number of CFOs who came and went. And as a public company, they were really flailing. In fact, you mentioned to me that in 2005, they had 420 stores across 45 U.S. states, and they had all methods of distribution. And if you looked around, I think at that point in time, it was hard not to see a Krispy Kreme donut in many parts of the U.S., whether you were in a grocery store or uh, driving around in a decent sized city in a convenience store, etc. 2016, enter a German family investment firm known as JAB, which has been on a mission since I would say uh, the 2010s to try to take market share in the coffee market from companies like Nestle and Starbucks. Every company that they've bought in the US and they've picked up a ton of consumer goods companies, has some link to coffee. JAB Holdings owns Pret-a-Manger now, Pete's Coffee, which is a West Coast chain also found in uh, grocery store shelves, Einstein Brothers Bagels, Panera Bread. They even own one-third of Keurig Dr. Pepper. In part of this roll-up that JAB Holdings embarked upon, mostly in that 2015 range onward, Krispy Kreme seemed a really important component because it was a company that was well-situated in the parts of uh, the South that I've I've mentioned, but also had a coffee business and has a coffee business. The surprising thing to me, which we don't have time to get into in this episode today, Emily, is why the company did not invest in the coffee strategy, which Krispy Kreme actually was starting to put some thought to around this time period. However, they um, took the company private in 2016, basically took full control of Krispy Kreme, and now they are bringing it back to the market. Krispy Kreme is going public again, uh, likely in the next few weeks. JAB Holdings will maintain about a 40% share of the company after it sells its shares to the public. I think that this new phase of Krispy Kreme as a public company, again, should be very interesting because some things have changed about the business in the years since JAB acquired the company. I think they brought their expertise and discipline to Krispy Kreme. We'll get into that. But Emily, how about some overview of the company's business, exactly uh, how it operates its business model? Yes. And and what I love about doing this show is that we didn't really need to provide any introduction when we said Krispy Kreme. I, I think everybody listening probably already has a sense about what Krispy Kreme does. In fact, one of the metrics they used in their S1 was that they had a 94% aided brand awareness in all of their target markets. Meaning when you walk up to somebody on the street and you say, hey, you want to go to Krispy Kreme? They're like, oh yeah, that donut place. Sure, right? Like that's the the process that somebody's mind goes through. So I think most people have some sense of the business. They they sell their donuts uh, mainly through their retail stores, but they've increasingly kind of changed the way they've targeted their market, which goes back to some of what Krispy Kreme has experienced in the past. You mentioned that they were distributing to convenience stores, uh, truck stops, uh, supermarkets, all of these places where people could casually walk in 
and grab themselves a donut. And it was an interesting decision that management made. And I, I think it's probably a bad one because Krispy Kreme is known for the quality of their donuts. It's an indulgence. And it was a business model that at the time, I think maybe devalued the brand a little bit. So what Krispy Kreme is in the business of now is changing the way that they distribute to third parties. Uh, they've renamed it. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's actually changing it much, but they renamed it to what they call Delivered Fresh Daily, their DFD model, where they're essentially using little uh, hubs of of Krispy Kreme creations to then distribute to these these third parties. And um, these hubs, um, often called the Hot Light Theater Shops, which I have my own qualms with, but I'll, I'll leave that on the table there. These Hot Light Theater Shops are ideally the main distributors of of these donuts, although they do use some factories, which we'll get into later. Yes. And, and we should explain for people who, I guess that, that 6 to 7% of people who don't have the brand awareness of Krispy Kreme, what this term means, hot light theater shops. Is it performance art? Is there someone in the window of a Krispy Kreme eating donuts as you drive up? No. <laughs> It is essentially the theater that goes on when you walk inside a Krispy Kreme. You see the big vats uh, that have the icing. You see these huge conveyor belts, which are rolling uh, freshly baked donuts down to the glazing process. And if you ask often, maybe I shouldn't be giving this away, but you can ask one of the employees if they're not too busy to pull one of the donuts as it's coming down the conveyor belt before it gets the icing. See what that tastes like. That's a favorite pastime in the downtown Raleigh store uh, here where I live, which is one of the first Krispy Kreme locations and still retained its iconic signage. So management has a sense that the making of the donuts is theater. They have glass walls at most of their locations now, so customers can see the donuts being made. But beyond that immediate bit of theater, you see a bigger facility. And that's the idea that they're trying to bring back. It's almost like a back to the future move on the part of JAB, because originally this was a model the company thought they could do successfully. Have the theater in front, have the average location actually be much bigger in back. If you um, happen to live near Krispy Kreme, drive around the back, you'll see their delivery trucks. They want to use these as small manufacturing facilities, as Emily points out, then to get the product into the grocery stores and convenience stores. But I think something that you've got a problem with, and I do too, Emily, is, is that's a decision that has de-emphasized the visibility in some ways of the Krispy Kreme brand. So they've stopped trying to put locations in highly visible areas just for the sake of having uh, a smaller donut shop, even though that's the direction that I think Starbucks and, and Dunkin' Donuts, who are sort of primary competitors uh, for one side of the business, they, they've embarked on, on visibility and smaller footprints in a big way. It also means that they've got to be very, very efficient in each location to make sure that they have a cost-effective supply chain for their so-called hub-and-spoke network, the, the spokes being all the grocery stores that they're delivering to. So we'll see over the long term if this decision really works out. Now, I will say that management loves the model. Uh, they think that it emphasizes the scarcity principle. They say that by 
really uh, drawing back on the number of big outlets and only making them these hot light theater shops, that adds to the scarcity of finding Krispy Kreme donuts. And it also brings this great experience for local customers while making sure they've got enough capacity to serve grocery stores. And I will say that at least in the mid-Atlantic region where grocery stores are fighting out for market share, Emily, where you live, and also one state south where, where I live, our corridor is a big battleground for all types of grocery stores. And I've said this before um, on our podcast, but think of Publix coming from the south, think of Wegmans coming from the north, the German grocers, Aldi and Lidl coming from overseas, Whole Foods trying to establish its presence, Sprouts trying to take Whole Foods market share. There are any number of chains that I could, I could go on that are customers for these hot light theater shops. So there is some sense of this business model in certain geographical areas. Now, to your point, does it really make sense as a long-term strategy? I think we can get into that more as we go along. I'm a little skeptical, though. I will say, I think one of the things the hot light theater shops have done well is advertising that classic Krispy Kreme glazed donut, seeing the glazing happening. I think one of the things that shocked me the most was that 64% of Krispy Kreme's donut sales are their original glazed donuts. It's immediately what's your mind and your mouth wants when you think about Krispy Kreme. But to your point, that strategy almost like two separate strategies in my mind because uh, management says that they, and this is a direct quote, their belief is that almost all customers desire an occasional indulgence and that when they indulge, they want a high quality, emotionally differentiated experience. I can see how walking into a theater shop and getting yourself a Krispy Kreme original glazed donut is that really cool differentiated experience. But On the flip side, when I walk into a convenience store, right, when I walk into a grocery store and I see those sitting out on a shelf somewhere, even if they've been delivered that day, that almost says to me, oh, it's a spontaneous, um, semi-regular purchase that somebody's going to make when they walk into their grocery store, as opposed to this occasional indulgence. Maybe I'm the only person that feels that way, but in my mind, it just, two, two things that don't exactly line up. I think you're on to something. The donut that you get in the store, in the convenience store, grocery store, is a different donut than the one you eat in Krispy Kreme. That donut that you're eating in Krispy Kreme hot off the the conveyor belt is that experiential donut. It is that treat that you are allowing yourself to have. I want to point out, for those of you who are really enthusiastic about the consumer goods world, you already know that the indulgent category exists across a continuum. There's healthy indulgent, there's permissible indulgent where you're permitting yourself to do something, there's core indulgent, you really don't think twice about it and that's your your main type of indulgent um, experience, and there's the word I think Emily just used, treat. So, when you're in treat mode, you're like, get out of my way, I'm going to buy that ice cream or I'm going to have my donut. To me, the hot donut in the store is exists in the treat part of the continuum. And if that's the case, I wonder then about the quality of the donuts that you get from the store. They're not the same. In fact, I don't like packaged 
uh, Krispy Kreme donuts. I'd much rather have a Dunkin' Donut. I think their glazed donuts taste much much fresher when they're packaged. Oh, those are fighting uh, words. They're they're fighting words. And and I should say Dunkin' Donuts doesn't do a lot of packaging, but let's put it this way: if you take home a dozen donuts from Dunkin' and a dozen donuts from Krispy Kreme, those of you in the South, you you probably know what I'm about to say. The next morning, what are you going to do? You'll eat that Dunkin' Donut straight out of the box, but you'll plop that Krispy Kreme donut in the microwave for 10 seconds and oftentimes eat it with a fork and knife. If I'm saying something that's heretical here, let us know for those of you who are watching live today and um, not listening to it on the podcast in the comments, we'll chat about this. But here's my point. Over the decades, Krispy Kreme has never had a huge penetration on grocery store shelves. So there's got to be a reason that they've not been able to have more of a penetration than just end caps on aisles and freestanding kiosks in grocery stores. I think the reason is because they are two different experiences. The the packaged donuts just don't taste as good. So it becomes a volume game uh, for them. Krispy Kreme then probably needs to have, rather than um, a lot more shelf space in each store, just get into more stores. And as the grocery industry has been growing um, at an interesting clip over the past years, maybe that works as a volume business. I'm with you though, Emily, I don't really see the big advantage in the model uh, to going with the hub and spoke strategy. I almost think it would be better for Krispy Kreme to just plow into the same type of road visibility strategy, maybe with double drive-throughs that Starbucks has done successfully, um, or those smaller footprint stores. I, I think that wouldn't harm the brand, and it would give them access to additional incremental profitable revenue. But we, we can chat about that a little bit more when we get into the, the financials of this company. Well, it's something that I find myself really conflicted about because I've long been a believer that Dunkin' Donuts and Krispy Kreme are fundamentally different businesses in terms of who they're targeting as a consumer. I've said this before, but I think the person who goes to Dunkin' Donuts is going because they're going to get a coffee and then they happen to just grab a donut when they're there because they see them on the shelves. I think the person who's going to Krispy Kreme is going because they want a donut. And they just happen to grab a coffee if they're there. So in some part of my mind, I'm, I think the, the smaller format stores that are more focused on those people that are just coming in to grab a coffee and maybe grab a donut almost serves Dunkin' better than it serves Krispy Kreme. But the numbers, I think, paint a different story. In fact, in 2020, 64% of their donut sales were done through a drive through lane. And sure, you could say that's the pandemic, but that was nearly 50% in 2019. So clearly, consumers are looking for convenience and ease of access for their daily donuts. So I, I think I fall on the side of the fence kind of with you, Osset, where I, I wish they were going maybe a bit more small format, a bit more convenience, a bit more drive-through because Starbucks, Dunkin', a handful of other businesses have had so much success with that strategy. Yes. And uh, Starbucks and Dunkin' had concurrent strategic decisions about the same time that Starbucks doubled down on its drive-throughs. Duncan decided to slim down its store format. I want to quibble with one thing you said, Emily, which is rare but but healthy because I, I think we, we tend to see the, the consumer goods world alike very much, even when we're analyzing companies. But I, I got to quibble with this. I think that uh, consumers of donuts in the Northeast probably go into a Duncan with a dual objective to get a cup of coffee and a donut. 
I, I love what you said about the donut leading and the coffee being an afterthought with Krispy Kreme and the opposite for Dunkin' Donuts. But I think at least in the Northeast, you go in for the, the same thing. Now, there is a, a lot to unpack here. I know we need to move on. I'll just say this one last thing to unpack it a little bit further. The strategy for Krispy Kreme is interesting in that JAB, which I said at the outset of this podcast, is extremely coffee-focused. It's interesting to me and curious that Krispy Kreme didn't invest more in its coffee strategy or hasn't over the last several years. They were actually starting to just before the JAB acquisition, and I have not seen any kind of upgrade substantive upgrade in their coffee offering, either in what what you get in the store or the marketing of it. Duncan, on the other hand, uh, invested in espresso in lots of its locations in, in the last couple of years, installing espresso machines, etc. So, it's, it's really curious also that Krispy Kreme wouldn't take advantage of the, the fact that so many people will go into a store with an offering of sweets just for coffee is what you were talking about with with Duncan. They they missed that signal, I think, and and they're missing this big signal that you mentioned. If sixty four percent of your business is coming from drive throughs that are attached to these big uh, theater type shops, isn't that telling you something? Now I want to give them the benefit of the doubt um, on one aspect of their growth, which is to say that there is a nice scaling effect that's going on, a relationship between the the hot light theater shops and what they call DFD, which you explained before. So, this is the direct food delivery to grocery stores, etc. In 2018, Krispy Kreme had 363 of these hot light theater shops globally, and they had 4,371 doors of distribution, the grocery stores, convenience stores, what we've been talking about. That's about 12 DFDs uh, doors per manufacturing center. Today, they've got 376 hot light theater shops. So, not a lot of movement there, but they now have 7,371 DFD doors. That's about 19 doors per store. So, at least on a volume basis, their strategy is working. Now, how does that affect the financial picture? I would argue that, yes, it's giving them some more revenue, but their margin profile hasn't really changed a whole lot in those years. Um, but again, management has chosen this direction. So now we, ha- we as potential shareholders will follow this through the next several quarters and years. Those of us who are interested in perhaps taking a position in this company. And I'm also interested in what you think about its market opportunity because we've, we've mainly been talking about just the donuts, right? The hot light theater shop stores, as well as their distribution to places like grocery stores. Well, there are a couple of other lines. Uh, they launched a, a fresh packaged think, you know, experience where you're on the shelves of your grocery store and, and you have pre-packaged Krispy Kreme labeled treats that launched in mid 2020. So relatively new venture. But the one that I was not expecting, was completely unaware of prior to reading this, was Insomnia Cookies, which is a chain that I'm familiar with because I was extremely jealous of all of my friends who went to college in the United States who had access to Insomnia Cookies, this uh, fresh cookie delivery chain, which apparently Krispy Kreme owned. And I think it's probably a, a good thing for their market opportunity, expanding outside of just donuts. 
who knew, right? <laughs> I did. I had no idea. And I think Insomnia Cookies is such a great business idea. Um, you drive by there if you're out late at night. They are open and delivering cookies to sleep-deprived college students who are often just um, wrapping up a fun evening. What a great business model. It's a digital-first business model. I believe it's probably a tiny portion of the company's overall profits and revenue. I didn't see that Insomnia was broken out separately uh, in the S1 statement, but management did mention that both sides are learning from each other. Um, The idea of scaling into an omni-channel business is something that Insomnia Cookies is not quite as comfortable with because they were digitally first, a digital digital first business. The idea of accelerating e-commerce investments has never been something that Krispy Kreme has totally embraced. But they mentioned in their S1 that each side now is is taking those learnings. Krispy Kreme is studying Insomnia Cookies e-commerce its digital footprint, its delivery methodologies. And Insomnia is sort of studying how Krispy Kreme can move across all these different channels with the various iterations of the stores they have. And management says that it's it's uh, positive for both businesses. So I like that market opportunity. We don't know how large it is. We should also mention that Krispy Kreme does have a, a very healthy global business. They're on uh, many co- continents. They're in Asia, Latin America, on a trip to Japan, I walked into the Krispy Kreme store in Shibuya, really um, hot um, neighborhood in Tokyo, which is just fun to go to at all hours of, of the day or night. It has one of the world's busiest intersections uh, or, or pedestrian crossings. I think it might be the busiest pedestrian ca- crossing in the world. And Krispy Kreme store is, is not located far from that. Uh, really fun store to visit. So they do have... Uh, market opportunity in in front of them. But Emily, you know, you had some reservations. You mentioned when we were prepping for the show that the the health food crazes that keep popping up make you a little bit nervous, especially because so much of this business is centered in the indulgence spectrum from the donuts to insomnia cookies. What about that reservation? Because I've got a similar reservation that I want to talk about, but I'm, I'm curious to hear your perspective on this one. Yeah, this is it, it's almost twofold because on one end of the spectrum I think we see a move towards more health foods and it's not necessarily things that are healthier it's that the perception of things that are healthier and I don't think you're ever going to change the awareness in people's minds that Krispy Kreme is not a health food, right? They're not going to suddenly change their batter to be whole wheat and people are going to say, oh, well, now I'm going to indulge in a Krispy Kreme donut. So I think they lose some optionality there. But I also think that when people do make that choice to indulge, right, have that treat like we talked about earlier, they're going for a differentiated experience. And maybe I'm showing a little bit of my Texas here and my awareness of, of what happens in Austin and then quickly spreads to the rest of Texas and the rest of the United States. But we talk about these local brands, these mom and pop shops that are really doing a lot to, to convince people to indulge on specialty treats that are not global brands. I, I think voodoo donuts probably comes to mind, right? And and the way that they've tackled the Austin market, I don't think there's any way that Krispy Kreme moves into Austin and is half as successful in a market that has so many local mom and pop donut shops at the way that they do in, in say, North Carolina, where they have a really strong base. So I'm a little bit nervous just about how 
fatty sometimes these trends can be. And when management talked about the market opportunity in the S1, they highlighted that indulgence foods have historically grown around 4%, but that was only during peak times, which was actually, devastatingly enough, times of of great economic distress and recessions. So it makes me wonder about when times are good, you know, maybe people really just aren't getting their Krispy Kremes the way they were if they were losing a lot of money in the stock market. (laughs) I can see that. When when times are bad, you definitely go to your comfort food. You know, I share in your Indulgence reservations, I'll call them. We've seen something similar in the coffee world. I mean, Starbucks has had a little bit of headwind as of late, at least before COVID, in the number of really great boutique coffee shops that have popped up in so many mid-sized cities. They were already there in the bigger cities. So surely Krispy Kreme faces competition from this this proliferation of various styles of indulgent treats that are popping up. And, and I think the um, little muffin shops are, are one of those uh, iterations. But boy, we seem to have so many where I live of, of different flavors, be they like fancy cakes, um, ice cream shops, etc. So, so yes, there's that. But there's something else too that gives me a little bit pause about the market opportunity. And this has something to do with the company's historical growth. I do want to say I love the discipline that JAB brought to Krispy Kreme. They trimmed back the franchise groups. They helped with their uh, deep store retail experience to to push the products a little further, by only a little, uh, into grocery shelves. But you know, even so, this is still a business that takes a lot of capital for Krispy Kreme to break into bigger cities. Um, The obvious example is the Northeast where Dunkin' dominates, but even go uh, to what's not really considered Northeast as much as a city like Boston, but let's take a look at New York. Um, Krispy Kreme has invested a lot of money in a flagship store that finally opened, was slated to open before COVID had to be delayed, finally opened a few months ago in Times Square. Really big, beautiful store. Um, as far as I can trace from the financials, Emily, I think that they put about $10 million worth of store opening expenses on their books for the store. That doesn't count the capital expenditure that went into this flagship store. They, they're they doing this because they've got to increase that brand presence and really shake up these markets to pump that brand perception even higher so then they can move into suburbs of major cities. Now, management will tell you that this is a huge market opportunity. Here's a direct quote from the S1. Despite our high brand awareness, we have a limited presence in certain key US markets, such as New York and Chicago, and have yet to build a significant presence in key US cities, including Boston and Minneapolis. I'm thinking along the lines of of your point on indulgence, that regional preferences may be playing a role here. I mean, traditionally in the South, where Krispy Kreme has had its greatest growth in past decades, consumers are always more willing to indulge in treats without thinking about the health consequences, as as bad as that sounds, versus their Northeastern and Midwestern counterparts. So is there a bit of a ceiling on Krispy Kreme's growth, is there a reason that they haven't been able to penetrate into these major cities? Is that white space there because they keep bumping up against the reality that there are entrenched players already in place and 
the statistical part of the equation, the, the population, the demographics aren't really going to be super regular patronizers of Krispy Kreme restaurants. I, I can see that argument. But the flip side of that coin, and granted, I only lived in Connecticut for about a year, but I saw the loyalty that I think the Northeast has towards Dunkin' Donuts, which has its own issues and Krispy Kreme penetrating that. But I'll tell you one thing, if Dunkin' can be so successful in that area of the world, and they put so much buttermilk cream and sugar into their coffees, I I think that it's smart for Krispy Kreme to try. Now, New York, Chicago, that's different. Then Boston, I think if they were building out this, this, you know, $10 million store in Boston, I'd feel differently. But I do appreciate the fact that they are trying to build and expand a little bit more through their storefronts, especially. I'll, I'll be super interested to see if that, that flagship store in New York City does anything for them. Yeah, I'm planning to visit New York at some time in, in the near future. I will definitely stop by there unless there's a, a just a huge long line. Luckily for them, even with COVID, I, I'm pretty sure. Uh, from a news article I read that they had their traditional uh, long lines when they first opened. And let's talk a little bit about their financials. I, I, the only thing that really stood out to me was that uh, this IPO is is wonderfully timed in the sense that Krispy Kreme is going to be able to use the the proceeds from this IPO to primarily pay down their debt, of which Krispy Kreme has over one point two billion dollars of prior to this offering. And once that debt is paid down, this should actually be a profitable business. Their interest expense right now is killing them in terms of of the debt load. So paying down some of that debt turns this into a somewhat profitable business. I didn't get super excited looking at the margins because it's it's donuts, right? What are you going to do? <laughs> That's right. And I think you you said that so well. I mean, there's only so much pricing power you can get with a donut, even a donut with, with so much brand recognition. You have to work on the cost side of the equation. Absolutely right, Emily. They're knocking out a really high interest portion of their debt picture, which is some related party debt. And they're using uh, another bit of the IPO proceeds to pay down a bit of a term loan. They'll be left with something like, a rough numbers here, $670 million worth of debt. But that at a lower interest rate based on LIBOR, um, the the London interbank uh, offering rate versus what they were paying to their related party, uh, which was higher interest. So this will give them some room to breathe on their income statement. Just a couple of things too. I, I I don't want to dwell too much on the financials, um, except to say that the the business has been set up uh, sort of to to generate manufacturing out of these hot theater shops, but also as a supply chain proposition. Krispy Kreme has uh, I think about thirty six donut factories, so they actually do ship out to stores from these locations which aren't consumer facing. And the model is interesting because they never seem to be at a working capital surplus. That means that they're always at a deficit, meaning they've got more in payables to their own suppliers than they do ready money in the bank. And part of this deficit that they seem to run perennially at has been solved by what's called a structured payables arrangement. And what this means is that the company has payables that it owes to its vendors, but it works with financial institutions, which give those same vendors a choice to sell their receivables to the financial institution. Bottom line is that Krispy Kreme then gets a lot more time to pay uh, 
versus a, a usual 30 or 60 or 90 day terms with its suppliers. It ends up paying the bank in increments of around 180 days. Of course, there's a financial cost to that. And I believe that um, if I remember correctly from my uh, experience with GAAP, generally accepted accounting principles, when you get into the the way this hits the the income statement, you actually come very close to having to call this debt. And in some cases, structured payables are almost equivalent to debt because you have a financing cost and something that's taking you a long time to pay, almost like a note that you have to repay. I'm just going into this bit of detail to say that, look, if they could have slightly better operating margins, uh, then this sort of drag on their working capital would ease up some. So to your point, Emily, the, the picture here really is about how they can expand uh, profitably. And I think it becomes at the end of a day, end of the day, a proposition of selling more donuts, whether they do it in their hot theater sh- stores or they do it on the grocery shelf. That really is the kicker here. You're talking about at the end of the day, a net margin that might be anywhere from two to 4% in a given year, meaning thereby they take home about two to four cents of profit on every dollar of sales that they're able to generate. So to to do better and then to have the resulting cash flows help the business, they've got to either expand those margins or to sell more donuts. And I am totally with Emily here. They need to sell more donuts. There ain't a lot more they're going to get out of the pricing equation there. So I'm kind of curious then, summing up this business, Long time fools, long time subscribers to Stock Advisor, one of the Molly Fool services, may be familiar with Krispy Kreme because I think David Gardner recommended it not too long after it went public in the early 2000s. And it was a terrible investment. I think it was eventually sold from the Stock Advisor scorecard before it was later then acquired. And Asset, you and I, alongside a handful of other fools, have now taken over some responsibilities for Stock Advisor as David's transitioned off. So looking at Krispy Kreme today and and thinking about the Motley Fool's checkered past with Krispy Kreme, are you interested in this business? Could we see this in the Stock Advisor scorecard one day? Well, Emily, you're really putting me on the spot <laughs> here. We, uh, because folks, we we have Emily and I have just started uh, our transition to to lead um, part of Stock Advisor, and uh, eventually, uh, how how Stock Advisor will evolve will be playing uh, a, a fun role in it. So I will say, uh, but I'll take your your question. Um, at face value and and just say that the company is a really great consumer-facing brand. So you can see why it caught David's attention. He's picked so many companies that were consumer-facing, as has Tom over the years. Uh, we, We forget about their big whiffs and we love and appreciate their home run. So this was just a big whiff. I think that it was harder to see in that S1 so many years ago, the problems that were in the management chain. That all came out later and the company just ended up having all kinds of yellow and red flags about its management that bit by bit sort of trickled out. So I'm going to shock you by saying (laughs) that I'm going to watch this business. I am skeptical of its growth prospects. I am skeptical of its financial equation. But 
as we have been talking about since January, it's important to pay attention to brand. I noticed before we went on air, Emily, you were drinking from a Yeti cup, and we're not going to belabor and bore listeners with our mutual sob stories about missing Yeti as a great investment. A lot of that has to do with its brand power. Krispy Kreme is getting another chance. They're backed by a very deep-pocketed, structured, disciplined private investment firm that's, you know, as we mentioned, is hanging on to 40% of shares and can exercise a lot of control. So I wouldn't count Krispy Kreme out. Now, would will is this going to hit the scorecard next month? Uh-uh. <laughs> no, it's going to take some time if it ever happens. But now let me turn the tables, my friend. Emily, is this something that you might be looking at for a future recommendation for Stock Advisor? You always say things so beautifully, and, and my only answer was just going to be a resounding, ah, oh, no way. <laughs> uh, this I, It's hard for me to get excited about donuts, not being a big donut connoisseur myself, but it's a low margin business. Their strategy confuses me. I think they've devalued their brand's name a lot. But Everything you just said prior to my negativity was very true. And I, I do think it's it's a bit auspicious that I'm sitting here drinking out of a Yeti mug, which I was given as a gift, to be very clear. I did not buy this myself. I would never betray my investing instincts like that. But it was an, a stock, an investment that I missed because I didn't understand the brand power. And maybe I'm doing the same thing here with Krispy Kreme. So I, I will take... A you know piece of advice from you, Austin. I will watch this one myself. I wasn't originally very excited about it, but I'm often wrong. Yeah, and you know to that point, Emily. Let's quickly b- before we exit, maybe a sentence each. Talk about the risks we see, and and this will help illuminate, I think, more why we both are initially skeptical. But we're we're gonna keep an open mind on, on this one. It sounds like you are, and I am as well. I, I would say the probabilities of it becoming a star performer or small, but you never know. And that's the fun of the stock market, the fun of investing. Sometimes your best investments surprise you. And sometimes the companies you think are going to just go out and crush it, they just wither away, wither on the vine. So um, give me one or two risks really quickly that you see in this company going forward. For me, it's just all consumer preferences. This is a donut business, unlike Dunkin', which has a lot of higher margin coffee products. And Krispy Kreme sells 64% a single product, right? That single glazed donut product. That to me is just not a super exciting place for me to put my money today. So it uh, doesn't excite me. I will say for me, um, I second that. And I will say that this approach of sort of doubling down on the hub-and-spoke concept. While it has its obvious advantages, I just don't know if that's the right direction strategically. I just reiterate, should they have gone into some type of avenue that replicates Dunkin's new model or Starbucks' attention to uh, the drive-through? And this is something we've... It's not just Starbucks and Dunkin'. It's also McDonald's, which is the biggest and baddest... um, sort of fast food or quick service entity on the planet. They recognized that a long time ago and have never wavered from their focus on efficient stores with a drive-through. At least in North America, it's a road-based culture. You can't totally leave that behind. But they could prove me wrong, again, open to changing my mind as the quarters roll by. I'm also open to changing my mind. And I always love having these chats with you, especially when we get the chance to talk about donuts for an hour. It's a treat. 
I am so hungry. And in op- opposition to Emily, for those of you who are watching live, you can tell from my cheeks that I actually enjoy a good donut or two or three. <laughs> I much prefer to get my indulgences and in things like eating an entire Snickers bar or going through an entire bag of popcorn. So I have my vices. Donuts just aren't one of them. <laughs> yay, yay to that. Well, Ossett, thank you as always for joining. Thanks so much, Emily. This was so much fun. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you just want to say hey, you can always shoot us an email at industryfocusatfool.com or tweet at us at mfindustryfocus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for his work behind the screen today. For Asit Sharma, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool on! Fool on!